0: Fly around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown, bring it to the farm table. Watch it steam and crack and pop Cornbread bacon in that stove Bring it to a TNC farm table Pick them maters good and ripe Drop black and candy stripes Look at them loading down those vines Bring it to a TNC farm table Bring it to a TNC farm Sable.
1: Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that I created to spotlight the people who produce, prepare and preserve Tennessee's regional and Appalachian foods and agriculture. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. And today we are setting the table with dreaming. I mean dreaming about warm spring days and getting out there and planting a new garden. In these old, cold, rainy winter months, we just have to dream, don't we, y'all? Today, we're visiting with two farmers and seed savers from East Tennessee who help to preserve and share heirloom seed of our region. I'm talking about Michael Washburn and John Koykendall. These two will be presenting a program on January the 7th at the Blount County Public Library in Maryville, Tennessee. And that is the feature of this episode of the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. John Kuykendall has a brand new book called Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. And he'll be conducting a book sale and signing from 530 until 7 as part one of this upcoming event at the Blount County Public Library. And then during the second part of this event, Michael Washburn will give a presentation called Planting for Seed Saving Success. Also on the program today, on Fred Sossman's Potluck Radio segment, B.J. Abraham is a graduate of the Master's Degree Program in Storytelling at East Tennessee State University. And when she returned to Johnson City recently, Fred Sossman talked to her about one of the foods that's always been special to her family. I want to thank you so much for tuning in here today on the Tennessee Farm Table I sure do appreciate your good company at our big Tennessee table. At the Blunt County Public Library, there is a seed library. Unlike hybrid seeds, this seed library is a collection of heirloom, open-pollinated seed that is carefully saved and collected, so the seed collection serves as a source for preservation and sharing of seed that can be saved from generation to generation in our community. Michael Washburn is a farmer, a husband, a father, and a seed saver. For his day job, he manages the garden at a very exclusive and prestigious East Tennessee Relay and Chateau. And we first visit with him today, get to learn more about his life and his upcoming presentation at the Blount County Public Library on planting for seed-saving success. What we're specifically talking about today is the program that you and John are going to present. It's a two-part program. Tell us about the the program you're going to present. Yeah, we're
2: gonna we're gonna do um, a program to kind of further along uh, some of the work that we've been doing on uh, uh, kind of the particulars of seed saving. There's been some good some good presentations, some good work, and we're just going to try to keep digging a little bit deeper and and go over some of the particulars of of what it takes to save uh, seed properly and and try to get the good folks out there that are interested in saving seed, whether for themselves or work on rare varieties, to try to give them the confidence they need uh, coming into spring and and start thinking about what what do I want to save seed on? You know, what what role do I want to play in seed saving? Like I said, either personal or or for the bigger cause of some rare varieties or, or some local varieties. So, yeah, that's what we'll be discussing.
1: Some of the listeners might not know, but here at the Blount County Public Library, there is a seed catalog. You're a person that has lent your expertise to that, and our buddy John Corkendall sitting right here has been a big part of it. And it's a repository for open-pollinated heirloom varietals, right?
2: Correct. Okay.
1: Correct. So that's none of those hybrids, nothing that you're going to save and plant, and then it won't come
2: True to type, yeah.
1: There you go. Yeah. You would think that it wouldn't be so confusing, unless we learn from people like yourselves or John. It's it's really hard to find good pure seed with pure genetics. Will you tell the whole point of the seed catalog?
2: Well, I think I think the the point of the seed catalog is is a it, it brings it brings people around um, seeds um that we can talk to each other about it's one thing if we, we order them out of catalogs um, and we can do that we can we can find them out of, out of catalogs but having a seed library starts to put some of the seed security in the hands of, of the community in the hands of, of of the growers that we have around here um and that way we can start to we can do lots of things with it. Um, we can make seeds available that are free to people, so they don't have to. So they don't have to purchase them. So um, the return on that is seeds donated back to the library. So um, seeds aren't cheap. When you start adding up three and four dollar packets, um, it can it can your little shopping cart can add up pretty quick. Uh, but this this will give um, a, a way for people to have access to seeds. Um, and then, and we can even take it further. When when we get people really clicking away on it, we can start selecting for seeds that that um, uh, do well in our in our climate, um, in our soils, um, and and even you know good work through that, you can get to where you're improving yields just on selecting varieties um, or or those genes that that happen to do well. Um, you, you don't eat the biggest, best-looking tomato. You save seed on it because that's the one you want to <laughs> you want to keep growing. It's uh, it's hard to resist sometimes, but that's uh, one of the the tactics to to um, improving your 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 seed genetics. Uh, so there's lots of, of things that we can do with it, um, and and beyond that, uh, a lot of it is just. Um, teaching people, again, how to grow food in the backyard and be amazed at how much food you can grow in a backyard in a little amount of space. Um, and so, it, you know, something like this is in, encourages people to do it season after season. And like with anything, you just get better and better and learn from those mistakes. And so this has a good support group around uh, that can give you some tips, some tricks. And, and again, uh, so people... People tend to do more when they feel confident about what they're doing. So,
1: it's so true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You had mentioned that there might be some local varieties.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, you know, John Quickenbill here—he's one of the—he's one of the ones that uh, that that definitely uh, has a great stock of of local seeds. And well, you go, you come to you come to uh, these seed swaps in the area, or. You come to the library to a presentation and you just find people have been hanging on, especially when you talk about beans and tomatoes um, and, and peas, uh, it's, it's thick in this region. And uh, you know, John's buddy, Bill Best, you know, uh, was up there in Berea and, you know, has this diagram that shows you how rich the diversity of beans and peas is in this Appalachian region. So there's a lot of people that got just those old varieties that that families have relied on through time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of those started to disappear with your so-called improved types and whatnot. Uh, but, but those beans are still coming out of the, out of the the woodwork and and need to be worked on and saved and cherished. And, you know, I tell you, one of the, you know, hanging around with teachers like John Quickenhall will teach you beyond even just the importance of the 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 seed itself and the vegetable that comes from it is the stories that go along with it and place them in history and time and, and it's just more of those puzzle pieces um, that show how people sustained themselves, what culture was like, what, what values were and so you can get a whole lot out of uh, just one little seed.
1: So you're a proud daddy and a proud husband. And will you give us a window into how you ended up here in East Tennessee with us?
2: You know, I, like I said, I'd originally started out in Texas, and about 15, we got transferred up to Wisconsin, and it was cold. So when I graduated high school, I headed south as quick as possible and uh, and moved moved to Atlanta um, yeah, with my current wife. Uh, I had never been there. I just knew it was in the south, so I was headed that's where she was going, so I, <laughs> I hung on and rode with her, and been able to hold her close ever since. But uh, um, we made our way up uh, to Northern Kentucky, and and uh, um, we both started s- studying something different than we originally started studying. But I, I started uh, studying anthropology, and was really interested in environmental anthropology, and had old traditional ecological knowledge and and it was just fascinating to see how different cultures operated and 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 so many of that so much of that was farming related and their relationship with the land so I kind of fell in love with that because you know that's that's a worldwide thing but mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but I had worked restaurants from a young age from 17 so and I found myself working at a, a French restaurant on the other side of the river over there in Cincinnati I always lived on the Kentucky side but um, and we had this uh awesome farmer lady that uh with uh, double parker old pickup truck right and block everything in downtown cincinnati and be out there with you know a scale and the chef's coming out you know weighing vegetables and uh and so uh i, I really I, I enjoyed every time she came by and was kind of amazed by her produce and and how it how it tasted and everything like that because i didn't really raise up around farming and, I guess you know mom mom had a good has a good green thumb and she's got beautiful indoor plants and always had a little garden out back so we always had tomatoes and things like that Uh, but but didn't necessarily come from farming so but I enjoyed my conversations and my time with her and next thing she's like well why don't you come out to the farm so I started just finding myself out there working kind of volunteering for free just to learn and finally one day she asked me if, if if I'd like to be paid and (laughs) I <laughs> was a college student. I'd take every dime I get. So eight dollars an hour cash, I'll take it. <laughs> so uh, so did that, and uh, just really found that uh, that's where I wanted to be. And uh, still had to keep the night job, uh, and then and then you know made my way made my way through school and uh, grew tons of stuff at the house. Just every seat I'd get my hands on, I was I'd try this and try that. And luckily, you know, Kentucky was really rich in tomato varieties, and so I came across all these old types and um, and just start growing them. And, and uh, the ones I liked, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd save seed on. So I didn't know a whole lot about seed saving at that time. I knew some isolation on tomatoes, and, you know, and that's really what I focused on. My first seed savings were all tomato seeds. Mm-hmm. Um one of those old varieties, I, I grow it every year today. Aww. Uh, but um, yeah, so I convinced my lovely wife, who was a um, uh, evolutionary biology major, uh, who loved farming as well, and and, and kind of in particular flowers, but um, uh. We we ran off to grad school together and studied agriculture and, and soil science and uh, so so yeah we ended up in, in agronomy together so we went to grad school together and okay. and we both we both ended up being farmers out of all of it uh, and uh, so I grow vegetables and herbs and she grows flowers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds perfect. Yeah.
2: So. Uh,
1: and you're a little young in this good around the garden I hear. Yeah
2: so uh so uh, so my wife she uh uh Susie she grows uh she has little mountain flower farm is her is her is her flower farm um and uh she's just on a, on a few acres here at the, at the foothills and uh so yeah I've got a four and a half year old that's been uh he's been around it his whole life so he 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 prefers his his vegetables or fruits of well fruits he's a if he could he'd survive strictly on fruits I think I mean he eats his kale and he eats his veggies but i I heard recently that's called a Frugarian <laughs> <laughs> so he likes his he likes his watermelons, his cantaloupes and his strawberries and that's what he's particular to so he tends his seventy strawberry plants and puts out. He puts out his his, his cantaloupes and, and that's what he focuses on, which is which is good, but uh,
0: little yeah. booger.
1: You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table Podcast and Broadcast, and you've been listening to an interview with Michael Washburn. My guests today are two farmers and seed savers from East Tennessee who help to preserve and share heirloom seed for our region. Michael Washburn, and John Kuykendall. These two will be presenting a program January the 7th at the Blount County Public Library in Maryville, Tennessee. And that is a feature of this episode of the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. John Kuykendall has a brand new book called Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories, and he will be conducting a book sale and signing from 530 until 7 as part one of this upcoming event at the Blount County Public Library. And then, during the second part of this event, Michael Washburn will give a presentation on planning for seed-saving success. After a word from our sponsor, Century Harvest Farm in Greenback, we'll hear from John Coikendall about his book and his work in preserving heirloom seed. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative free grass fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community serving, food insecurity fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. And on Friday, January the 17th, from 6 until 8 p.m., I myself will be hosting a paint event at Century Harvest Farm. The theme will be a special Valentine's painting to give as a gift to a special person on Valentine's Day. And this will be a fun and creative event aimed at fostering love. And there will be wine and Century Harvest Farm charcuterie. The location of this event will be in the cozy farm gathering space at the farm in Greenback. 100% of the proceeds for this painting activity will go to provide child care for 45 makers in the Century Harvest Farm Foundation from the Ground Up programming this year. This is a ticketed event and more information by Facebook by searching paint, wine, sip, Century Harvest Farms and always centuryharvest.org. And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table Podcast and Broadcast. Let's join our second guest on today's program, farmer and seed saver, John Koikendahl. He's got a brand new book called Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. And he'll be conducting a book sale and signing from 530 to 7 this upcoming Tuesday, January the 7th at the Blount County Public Library in Maryville, Tennessee. And in this recording, he's going to talk about his growing out of cotton seeds that came from the Walker Sisters, who were the residents in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park before it was a park. And you might be familiar with the old homestead, which is called the Walker Sister Cabin. And he'll also talk about the Tennessee Cut Short Bean and the importance of story banking. Did you grow cotton this year?
3: Absolutely, and it has a fascinating history.
1: Tell me about it, would you?
3: You're familiar with the seven sisters, aren't you? The Walker sisters who lived in the Greenbrier community mm-hmm. in the Great Smoky Mountains. Now it's interesting that those seven sisters never left the farm. I believe two of them were engaged with their husbands. I'm not sure if they died in World War II, but for some reason they never married. So all of the sisters stayed on that farm and they raised everything they needed their produce right there and one of the interesting things was this cotton and i grew it this year now shannon walker gave me the seed of several years ago and someone in the family had handed it down to him but of those seeds that i got from him this year i was only get able to get three of them to germinate that's it i mean that's awfully close to the edge It is. I have gotten down as low as one seed on things, where I only, only had one seed, say, in two cases, two beans I had, I only had two seeds of it. Mm. So that's that's too close for comfort. It is. Anyway, I got three plants from the, these three seeds that germinated, and they made three beautiful bushes, cotton plants, and they were just loaded with cotton bowls, and they were great big ones They opened up. There's, Looked like a snowstorm in
1: progress.
3: (laughs) But they're really, really beautiful. And out of that seed stock this year, I've been able to cart out a lot of cotton seed out of that. So now that's uh, out of the woods, so to speak. I don't have to worry about it being endangered.
1: Thank goodness, John.
3: Now, several years ago, I think it must have been about 15 years ago, there was a lady in town that gave me some seed. She had acquired, I think, from a museum in Oak Ridge, and they had a number of seeds from the Walker sisters. But this seed had been poorly stored for years and years and she gave me samples of, there were beans, that cotton, and several other things and I wasn't able to germinate any of them. Mm. So it was dead seed so to speak. But later on, a few years later, Shannon Walker comes along and gives me this, the same cotton. So I, I had good luck with it this year. Next year we're gonna plant a big row of it.
1: Hey, I'm so excited. Well, some people might not know who Shannon Walker is. Will you tell us?
3: Shannon Walker is a great individual. He's a great preservationist. He worked at the uh, same job I did,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and he was uh, he was good at uh, I say preservation, canning, making all sorts of canned products. He's good at uh, just a, a number of things, and he loves. Uh, loves preservation saving old seeds and things mm-hmm. of that nature so yeah. i was so glad to get that uh, seed from him that one
0: yep. for,
3: for me as a seed saver you know failure is not an option mm-hmm. i can't imagine going back and saying well i had the the seed but none of it came up it's a, it's all gone then this would be on me i failed at that
1: yeah it would never it would never leave you that terrible feeling yeah as
3: i've said it's a, it's my responsibility, or my, the ball is in my court, so to speak.
1: It's so true. Tell me how you felt when Shannon gave you that seed.
3: Well, I was really excited about it because I'd had it once before, mm-hmm. and that seed was totally dead. Mm. So I thought, well, that's the end of it. I'll never see any more. Now, the beans that I have, I have several different ones from Cade's Cove. Do you? And I believe from what I can remember one of the old beans that they gave me that was from the Walker sisters I think I have one it's called the Cades Cove cut short bean and I'm pretty sure that was one of them and I have several others that most likely they would have had at that time so there's a this won't be the original seed from their stock that they've raised but it would be the same one and and those seeds were generally handed down through communities so if one person had it, <coughs> chances are they got it from another farmer, another family, so it would uh, it would have a common background, being the same variety. I'd prefer it came directly from them, mm-hmm. but in this case, I have to do second best. Well. And sometimes guessing, I have to, mm-hmm. using guesswork.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I have an old bean that's a oblong, it's sort of a golden tan seed, and it was grown over in the Greenbrier area. Now this, I've seen this bean under numerous names, this is very common, a lot of your old varieties. They would have different ones. I have one bean that I think I have seven different names for.
4: <laughs>
3: one, in one case it's called the Granny Bean, the Tennessee Cut Short, the Lear Bean, Old Time Brown Stick, and several others that I no longer remember but this is all the same one and that bean actually is the Tennessee cut short. It's about four inches long it makes cut short refers to the fact that the seeds are tightly packed in the pods in other words like taking your knuckles and pushing them together okay. they have they've, they've indentation from where they press together as opposed to an oblong type of bean that has space in the pod. So This one is, I do believe, is the old Tennessee cut short bean. Mm -hmm. But the most common way of naming these things was generally by a family name. The family that grew these things, preserved them over the years, it would become known in that community, say, as the the Lear bean. I've got one example from the Lear family up near Gatlinburg. Mm -hmm. (coughs) This is in the years before the park. So that family passed that down over the years, and that bean was referred to and known as the Lear bean. Oh, there was one other name for it, I just remembered. It's called the tick bean. <laughs> now that's a rather unappetizing description, but the reason, it, terrible. the reason it had that name, the tick bean, is in the green shell stage, in other words, when they're fresh, you shell these out. They have sort of a grayish white appearance like a swollen tick, a dog tick. <laughs>
1: Like a castor bean seed.
3: Yeah, and again, uh, that's not a very appealing uh, Mm -hmm. advertisement for that particular bean. (laughs) Many times they would use descriptive names. The Mm -hmm. family names, descriptive names, and sometimes it would be named after an area that it came from. Mm -hmm. Like just plain Cade's Cove bean. Mm -hmm. Forgotten. The ones that knew all that have long since departed, so it's up to us to revive that and pass it on that's one of the real important things we do with memory banking memory banking involves i'm going to say that i come to you i know that you had that large yellow tomato with the pink modeling in it i think you still have that one don't you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i come to you and i want a sample of that seed well i want to know your name something about your family what was your family history Where did this variety come from? Was it from another state, another country? Were there any special requirements for growing it, special uses it? Was it a paste tomato, a canning tomato, just for fresh eating? Any historical knowledge also that can go with that? So this is, it's giving it a family history, so to speak. Otherwise, it's just a tomato. I say, well, Amy gave me a yellow tomato with some pink modeling. Well, what else do you know? I don't know anything else that's not very interesting. No, it's not. But when we can tell the story of where that originated from, some of your family story, any stories that go with it, how it's been handed down and used, then that makes a big, big difference.
1: It sure does. Well, John, I'm excited that you have this new book. And um, it is called preserving our roots, my journey to save seeds and stories. And all these years, you've been doing this and it's finally in a book with Christina Melton Who didn't she put all that together
3: oh mercy I owe it all to Christina Melton and her friend Mm -hmm. Miss Hackenberg she did the photography for it Mm -mm. (coughs) Sarah Hackenberg great great photographer and Christina came along and she came uh, showed up one day where I work And she uh, found out that I'd spent time in Louisiana and I had some of my drawing books with me where I do the the sketches of people and places and things and also the stories written down could be anything from a family recipe to an old farmer's tip. Any number of things. And this book is, is comprised of years and years of collecting. You look inside the just on the inside cover the photographer took pictures of all of these uh, or a number of these journals and those are ones that I've worked on for years and years collecting those stories and so that's what went into making this book actually only a very small percentage of it's in this book I want to do something else another one with it I'd kind of like to focus on some of the individuals
1: And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. You've been listening to an interview with John Kuykendall, farmer, seed saver, and now author of a new book, Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. And these two guests that we've just heard from on the program today, Michael Washburn and John Coykendall will be presenting a program this upcoming week at the Blount County Public Library in Maryville, Tennessee, on January the 7th, beginning at 5.30. John Kuykendall will have a book signing and sale from 5.30 until 7 as part one of this event. And then during the second part of this event, Michael Washburn will give a presentation Planting for Seed-Saving Success, and links to my guests' mentioned events and sponsor for my show, always at tennesseefarmtable.com. You can also find the podcast there. Up next is Fred Zossman's Potluck Radio Series, and today he features B.J. Abraham. She is a graduate of the Master's Degree Program of Storytelling at East Tennessee State University.
4: This
3: is Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Sossman. B.J. Abraham, who now lives in Atlanta, Georgia, is a professional storyteller and a child of the Mississippi Delta.
4: And I'm full-blooded Lebanese, but don't ask me where this came from, a Lebanese person named Betty Joe. but I'm a Southerner. And you wouldn't think in this little town, Clarksdale, Mississippi, 20,000 people, there would be many Lebanese people, but there were, and we sort of all lived in the same neighborhood.
3: When B.J. goes back home to Clarksdale, Mississippi to visit her sister, the Lebanese dish called kibbe is always on the menu.
4: Kibbe is like the national dish of Lebanon that we're famous for. It's made with top round ground beef They, in the old days, made it with lamb because they had lambs, and cracked wheat, which has been soaked in water, and drained, and ground onions, salt, pepper, secret spices, I can't tell you about. When we were growing up, we had kibbe every Sunday because, Mama, there were four of us, and we're Catholic. We'd go to mass, come back, and have lunch, and it was the quickest thing Mama could get on the table because you can have it raw, baked, or fried, and we had it raw, every Sunday because it didn't, you didn't have to cook it. It didn't take any time to do it. It's called kibbe Nayi in Arabic. You mold it usually on, I don't know why, but it's usually a, an oval platter. But the final touch is you take the edge of your hand, the palm, and you make a vertical and then a horizontal line, and that's the sign of the cross. So the kibbe is always blessed before we eat it.
3: For Potluck Radio,